Jesus Here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. This series of episodes follows my journey getting to know the Porch Band of Creek Indians, the only federally recognized native tribe in Alabama. In the last episode, you heard from Cheryl Thrower, the records coordinator for the Porch Office of Archives. Cheryl's sisters, Sehoy and Rachel, also work for the tribe in the areas of environmental protection and Creek language, respectively. I mentioned that they've heard every three sisters joke that's out there. Did you look up the three sisters? They're three crops, corn, beans, and squash, that many Native people have traditionally planted together. The beans climb on the cornstalk like it's a trellis. They, in turn, fix nitrogen in the soil and anchor the tall corn plant. The squash has broad leaves that keep back the weeds and hold in moisture. Together, the three sisters nourish the people. I can definitely see a connection to Cheryl, Sahoy, and Rachel Thrower. They're all doing work that nourishes their community, the Porch Creek Indians. Their grandmother, Gail Thrower, was also the tribal archivist, just as Cheryl is now. We had seen Gail Thrower's picture in the Porch Museum. The picture was taken when the tribe's federal recognition was announced. Many people within the tribe had worked long and hard for that recognition and the rights it conveyed. I wonder if you could start by telling us about your grandmother, since we noticed her picture in the museum, Gail Thrower. Yeah. Um, anything that you'd like to tell us? She was there present when the federal recognition took mm-hmm. place. That's my favorite picture of her, I think, yeah. because that's, I don't know if they say it in the museum, but that's the moment she heard that we got federally recognized. Yeah like the exact moment. So it's my favorite picture of her. She was kind of the archivist for the tribe for a long time. She wore a lot of different hats, but that was definitely one of her main jobs. And as kind of like a genealogist for the whole tribe, because that was a huge process in becoming federally recognized. We had to trace back a lot of our family history and a lot of our lineages. So that was a huge task that she was given and put upon herself in a lot of ways. So, so yeah, that's that. That was, I think, her what she's known for mainly now within the tribe. That's how people remember her mostly. And I learned a lot from her. You know, obviously archiving wise, that's what I do now. So, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. So, you were inspired by her work to come into archiving yourself, or yeah, not at, not at first because at first I went to. I went to art school for animation, of all things, mm-hmm. in, at the Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Joey. Joey Nasser is Cheryl's husband. Oh, I was and, wondering. Yeah. <laughs> so we were both in animation, and he went into voice work for animation mostly. And then I got really into art history, and they had a really great animation archives at SCAD in Savannah. Mm-hmm. And it was there that it was kind of like, oh, that's, this would be a really awesome career, something to get into. And it just never clicked with me until that moment that I was like, oh, I've been training for this for most of my life between my grandmother and my dad and just my whole family on like within the tribe. Like they had always instilled in me like a sense of history and it being important and how to conserve and preserve things so it just kind of flowed in naturally after that point Mm -hmm. so your dad was also an archivist for the porch 
I don't know if he was officially an archivist, but he definitely was something of like a spiritual medicine man for the tribe for a long time. Um, And so a lot of people would come to him with family heirlooms, with artifacts, because they weren't sure what to do with them, where they should go. So a lot of things pass through my family homes before there was even an archives office or a museum. So it felt like a lot of the times our house and my grandmother's house was kind of like this weird receptacle for where these are where we keep things safe until we're able to have an official area to, you know, to keep them. So that it was weirdly always in my life. Like I find things in our collections now in the archives and I'll, I'll be like, oh, I remember when that was in my living room, you know, <laughs> like, so it's very surreal sometimes. <laughs> How do things usually come to you? Is it people, you said people would bring things to your, your dad because mm-hmm. they, he was a, you said, you used the phrase spiritual medicine man, mm-hmm. but that meant he would know the significance of an item or is that? Yes. And then also just being, you know, my, my grandmother's son also, mm-hmm. it was kind of that it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you're your gale thrower son, so you must know some of this stuff. And then he would consult my grandmother, and they would, between them, they would figure out, like, is this significant to the tribe or not, you know, and hopefully be able to, you know, help that person out, whatever it was they needed, history record-wise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you go out and look for things as well, or just wait until you discover things? Or how do you make your collections? Well, sometimes I feel like we go out and find them. I know a lot of times when I'm going to like either yard sales or estate sales with Joey, like he always sees me going through all the, like if there's any family paperwork or albums or anything, I'm always on the lookout for any little thing regarding the tribe because so many people in the Atmore area and the surrounding area, they'll have these great records and priceless things and they don't even know what they are mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So it's always, it's always good when, you know, just to double check while you're at in places like that, just yeah. to make sure. So sometimes it's like that, but most of the time nowadays it's people approaching the tribe or the archives office with a donation to give or, you know, something we can make a copy of. Mm-hmm. So that's usually how it goes nowadays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I spent the first year of my life on the reservation on a house just down the road from here. And then we, my family and I moved to Florida, which, you know, is just a hop and a skip Mm -hmm. that way. Like it's, you know, so we would still come back here all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I would play around here all the time as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then when I was around 12, my parents got divorced and we moved up to family in Atlanta but we would still come back a lot, like every summer we were back here. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I went to went to high school up in Atlanta. And then uh, because I was living in Georgia at the time, I went to SCAD mm-hmm. for college, met my husband. Um, and then right after, lived in Texas for a while mm-hmm. and then got a job in New York at an ad agency. Mm-hmm. Lived there for seven years and then moved back here two years ago something like that now? yeah like the the archiving job opened up and mm-hmm. i was like i need to get back home oh, like <laughs> and that's perfect so mm-hmm. you're needed back here so mm-hmm. so that's what i did we came mm-hmm. back here mm-hmm. had you always wanted to come back home i think so there was definitely a a sense of you know new york is fun but there was there was definitely a sense of a i miss being 
out in the more rural area, mm-hmm. out more in the country. And, you know, I, I did miss the, the strong community ties, definitely. So there, there was definitely that sense of wanting to come back eventually. Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you talk to us a little bit about having been away mm-hmm. and come back? sort of some of maybe the pros and cons you've seen of having such strong community family roots and all that stuff. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh, where to start? (laughs) Um, So definitely the pros is, are definitely, you, you really don't need to worry about too much. Like if something happened to me or my husband, like I feel like I have a long list of people who I could call upon and they would come and take care of something like, you know, whatever we needed, you know, and that, that was definitely something lacking in other places I've lived. Like in New York, it was very much like you're, you're on your own, you know, and you, you know, make do with what you have kind of thing. So, yeah. And I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're a little bit out of the way, like, like rule wise. So we don't have as many, you know, shopping options, like food options as, you know, big cities and stuff like that. But by comparison, I can grow a garden now, which is something I've <laughs> dearly missed <laughs> where I was living. So, you know, like to me, all the, the cons that come with being in this area are kind of outweighed by, you know, all the alternatives you have being in an area like this. So, yeah, so th- those are the biggest things to me, but I, I don't mind them really. You know, I'm not, you know. I feel like New York was wasted on me a little bit because I'm very much a homebody. Like, I really didn't take advantage of much. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very content here. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's an article by Cheryl's aunt, Lori Sawyer, in the 2004 volume of Tributaries, the Journal of the Alabama Folklife Association. Lori Sawyer's mother was Cheryl Thrower's grandmother, Gail Thrower. In the article, Ms. Sawyer tells the story of picking mayhaws with her mother. Mayhaws are the sweet tart berries of hawthorn trees. Generations of Ms. Sawyer's family have picked mayhaws every May and made delicious jelly out of them. Their neighbor, Mrs. T, had some hawthorn trees at the edge of a cypress swamp, where the stalwart cypresses protected the mayhaws from competing undergrowth. Ms. Sawyer writes, Nearly everyone in this region has drained their cypress ponds for farmland and cut the old trees for the cash they bring. This modest woman, Mrs. T, has resisted, even though I know she could use the money. I've read that mayhaw trees are killed by competing undergrowth, and the full canopy of large trees protects the mayhaws from overcrowding. It's hard to find native mayhaws now, and most people my age don't even know what they are. I asked Mrs. T if her children appreciate the Mayhaws and if they would continue to protect them. She says she thinks so, since they grew up playing in this swamp. I look at the fallen fruit, Ms. Sawyer continues, and young Mayhaw trees shooting up from the roots of older trees. These young Mayhaws survive because the cypress protect them and the existing roots of the older Mayhaws provide a strong foundation. I understand this interdependence. These trees are here thanks to Mrs. T's protection. I am here today picking this fruit because of my mother and the tradition her parents began over 50 years ago. 
Holland Andrews was one of the students who went with us to the 2023 Southeastern Indian Festival and participated in our interview with Cheryl Thrower. At the festival, Holland noticed a beautiful picture of mentoring through the generations in a community. At the festival, there was, I forgot from which tribe, but there was like a line of men and then women following. Each of them went from like the oldest and tallest down to like probably like around 30 year olds to like a five year old. Mm -hmm. And they're all doing the same thing in a line. And I don't know, I thought it was very beautiful seeing the way that the five year old could look up to each like step and know that like, I don't know, and as it went up, the person got like better and more advanced Mm -hmm. at whatever they were doing. You could see the youngest one like looking up to the people above her and like seeing, I don't know what she was trying to do and like, the progress that she would make, like, as she was getting mm-hmm. older. Yeah. yeah. I think multi-generational interaction, it's very important mm-hmm. within the tribe. And in a lot of Native American tribes, it was just something you did uh, for, you know, traditionally, like, your your grandparents and your great-grandparents lived with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you all took care of each other and made sure, you know, you had everything that you needed and you know, as a result, it results in the a very large community at that point. So, and that's how I was raised. Um, my my great grandmother lived with my grandparents, and we were practically raised at my grandmother's house. So we we always had um, a multi generational view of things. Mm-hmm. So it, like you were saying, with the the dancing, it did help. You know, if I saw my my mother my grandmother and my great-grandmother all cooking, for instance, you know, you could see how they did it, you know, like their variations on recipes and you kind of had a sense of like, well, one day I'll be there. You know, I can, I'm learning and I'm observing and seeing how to, how to do this and just, just any other skill, you know, it, mm-hmm. it helps, it does help with the confidence, you know, mm-hmm. like learning, learning a new thing like dancing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it kind of threads together the past with the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. What do you think you learned from your grandmother? Um, You you said you learned a lot from her about the practice of archiving. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things you learned? I think the biggest thing I learned from her was that it's not, if we were to, she, she would show me like a record or she would show me um, an artifact and she would be very adamant about like, this isn't just a, a thing. Like this is something that a person used and they used it for this reason. Mm-hmm. And, but she was very practical about it. And I think that was something that she instilled in me. It was this, this has been handled by a human and it should be respected as such but she would also be very clear on like this is a pot and they used <laughs> they used they used this to make softki like you know corn meal mm-hmm. out of and that's it it wasn't for a ceremonial use there is no <laughs> spiritual value to this mm-hmm. it's just for cooking but that doesn't make it any less special mm-hmm. so that was so i'm i'm having trouble like articulating it but that was something that she definitely instilled in me it was not you know, not to be so cold and clinical 
about history and taking care of artifacts. You know, it was looking at a thing and realizing the practical use for it, like what it was used for and still cherishing it for that. My grandmother was definitely a like an early experimental archaeologist in her way. She was up to all sorts of things <laughs> like because she would hear about, you know, what our ancestors used to do. And then I would come over to her house like every weekend and she would be trying it, you know, even if it was gross, you know, like like, oh, I heard deer brains are great for tanning. Like and so I would come over and she'd be doing that. And I'd be like, oh, God, no. <laughs> so but that kind of thing. And you get exposed to that. So that she was very, I guess what I'm trying to say, she was very hands-on with history. It almost made it feel like like those old practices or historical figures became old friends in a weird way. Mm. So when I'm reading something about like an old chief or an old practice, like you can almost, I almost feel like, like, oh yeah, I remember doing that. I remember my grandmother doing that. So it mm. definitely helped instill going way back mm -hmm. certain things so it's so it's weirdly familiar a lot of things so it's I had a weird childhood because of it but I wouldn't trade it because <laughs> I feel like it, it helps me a lot day to day in my job now. <laughs> Cheryl's husband Joey Nasser had an interesting insight about Cheryl's family's approach to history. I feel like you and your family have always been really big on the human element of history to where it's oh, like yeah. a lot of the times it's easy to look at something that's happened forever ago and be like, oh man, like people were really stuck up or like maybe more refined or whatever because just because it's something that kind of mm -hmm. happened a long time ago. And I feel like you guys are very good about breaking down that they were just humans. And yeah. it's like, they may have done certain things differently, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's like a lot of just what makes a person a person yeah. is still the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's a great point. How do you think that relates to what to why you keep things? I mean, why save artifacts at all? But first my first my first thought is that just because we have so few things left, mm -hmm. especially here after the Trail of Tears, just so much got wiped out. You know, I mean, first before that, it was you know like European explorers that wiped out a lot of our culture, a lot of our native plants and animals like us um mm -hmm. and then then colonialization and then the trail of tears so after all these things happen we're just left with this bare minimum so anything we we have anything like pertaining to our culture like we just we try and hang on to and try and make sure that's passed on as best as we can so mm -hmm. i think just when you see you have so little of something, I think that just, it helps, you know, like, well, let's, let's hold on to that, you know, let's keep that, you know, to, mm -hmm. to make sure it's, it's passed on. So, yeah. How does that connect for you to this strong sense of community of everybody taking care of everybody? Mm. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a connection there. Oral histories are vital to Cheryl's work of preserving the history and memories of the Porch Creek Indians. Yeah, I suppose I suppose it's, you know, people in that way also helping preserve, you know, the memories and things like that. Like a big thing 
within our community is oral history. I mean, as it has been since the very beginning, you know, of our tribe, that's how we pass down a lot of knowledge. And it's something we're trying to keep up with within the archives. We go to people's houses all the time and just interview the family, interview them, just try and eke out any kind of memories they have, anything that they recall from the early days, you know, like, do you remember your grandparents speaking Muscogee, speaking the native language, anything like that. So, mm-hmm. so in that way, it, it, it does help us that sense of community, uh, being able to just go to people's houses, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, well, let's, let's go to Beth's house, you know, we'll get coffee and then we'll, you know, and try and preserve this piece of history. And then, mm-hmm. and then when you, when you know somebody, you know, within the community so well, you know, you can just approach them and be like, hey, can we scan your family Bible? Hey, can we do that? So that's that's a benefit definitely with, with the, the strong community. Like it definitely helps us gather the, the information and the records we need mm-hmm. to preserve them. We asked Cheryl about some of the most interesting artifacts she has found in her archival work. It's a little thing, but I think one of the things that surprised me that I found in the archives recently was um, a pair of baby shoes from the 1920s. And it just surprised me because they were, they were nice leather baby shoes, Mm -hmm. like for like a two year old. Mm -hmm. And you just never find artifacts like that, especially around here because, you know, they would like run through, they would like play through those shoes mm-hmm. and it's something you passed on to the next kid until they were falling apart. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was just a very, like, it's one of my favorite things mm-hmm. in the, in the archives office right now because they're just so rare. Yeah. And it's from an old family too, like that I'm descended from. So it's, mm-hmm. so it's just, it's so interesting just to see something like that, mm-hmm. you know, just, it's surprising just in the fact that I knew we were so, you know, we weren't privileged during that time. And to see something like that, like someone very clearly loved that child mm-hmm. enough and then treasured, like, you know, that item enough to preserve it all the way up until I could get my hands on it, you know, and properly store it. So just just in that way, when you see those little sparks of, you know, people still had pride for their appearance and they had, you know, they, they wanted to... To feel nice, to look nice, even when they didn't have a lot, you know, in any way they could express it, even if it was just a tiny little pair of baby shoes. So, yeah, so things like that are always fun to find. Cheryl's work as an archivist and oral historian has sometimes extended beyond the Porch Creek Indians. Early on, she interviewed members of Joey's family who immigrated from Palestine. I'm curious, Joey, right? (laughs) With you being married to Cheryl and, and all of the work that she's doing, how has that impacted your own understanding of your family lineage and story? So that's actually interesting because when Cheryl was first starting out to practice interviewing, she interviewed my father and my uncle on my father's side. And so family history has always been really, really important to Cheryl and to her side of the family. And to my side of the family, it was mostly like we knew grandparents and that's kind of where things petered off. We, we didn't really look into a whole lot of our lineage or our history or anything like that. But my father and my uncle were first generation immigrants from Palestine. 
And so my dad had a really difficult childhood and a combination of the fact that it wasn't really something my family brought up a lot in general. And I was also hesitant to bring up what were pretty consistently really negative memories meant that I didn't really talk to him a lot about it. So within that interview with Cheryl, I learned more about aspects of my family history than I had in like the 30 years prior. (laughs) Um, So I, I feel like Cheryl is now kind of opening the doors for my family to, to kind of focus a little bit more on our own lineage and, uh, kind of look more at our history. So that's been nice. Yeah. That was an interesting interview too. And not to get, you know, off track too much, but because it was, you know, his, his side of the family had dealt with, you know, being run out of Palestine. Mm -hmm. It was weirdly similar Mm -hmm. to interviews I had done with elders here. So it was the, the overlap was interesting for that because it's, you know, it's a traumatic thing and you have to approach it very gently and just try and be respectful about it. As I listened to Cheryl talk about working with elders who have suffered from generational trauma, my mind started making connections. Cheryl gave me a gentle correction that helped me understand both her role and her father's role a little better. You seem to have such a a gentle and respectful approach. And I'm sure that some of that comes from knowing this, knowing the history, knowing what people have been through. Have you done any training specifically to talk to people? I'm just curious to talk to people who have experienced trauma because you seem so sensitive to it. Or have you just built those skills on your own? I have no training on it. I think it was just something I was raised with. Mm. A lot of people who were troubled, I think, who were going through a hard time, they would approach my father for guidance on a lot of things. So I I think I was just there for when people were in a bad way, in bad situations, whether that was mental, spiritual, bad physical health, anything like that. So I was kind of raised around that and just, I, I guess, just taught to be sensitive about it. But I've had no formal training regarding it, but... I think it was just being raised around it and knowing to be aware, like, of what to do and what not to do. I was grateful for Cheryl's clarification. She brought my understanding of her work just that much closer to her own understanding. That may be the main goal for me and my colleagues, to know the Porch Creek Indians as people, to align our own understanding of the porch ever more closely with their self-understanding like a curve in the calculus that my son understands, and I don't really, that gets closer and closer to the limit, even though it won't ever fully reach it. The Porch have experienced a tremendous amount of racism throughout their history. They're aware of the stereotypes non-Native people have. In an earlier episode, I mentioned how Chief Calvin McGee subtly played with those stereotypes and used them to benefit the tribe. My colleagues, Stephen Potasik and Teresa Davidson, reflected with me about that after our visit to the Porch Museum. There was this really interesting uh, moment that happened on our tour, uh, Teresa, where we came to this place where one of the politicians who was Native American um, had a traditional headdress on. And you kind of brought up, like, that's 
really odd because they don't <laughs> wear that in this this region. Yeah. And uh, could you share some of the story of what what they shared in response and how that? <laughs> yeah, kind of that was a great it? story. Like it was it's so, right, it was fantastic, and it was so like. <laughs> Um, like they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. So obviously the headdress is not traditional headwear for the Muscogee Creek. It's not. And I remember they, they showed us variations on what they would wear. And, and it, it depended on the era what they were wearing on their heads. But it wasn't a feathered headdress. Um, but yeah, the the gentleman who did that did that because he knew he was savvy enough to know that this is what American people and people in Washington would recognize as "quote unquote" Indian, and so he was just going to play it up, you know, and and ended up getting what they needed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> you want the stereotype? Here you go. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. Chief Chief Calvin McGee. Yes. There you go. Yes. He, he uh-huh. was. Yeah, and he um, knew and worked with President Kennedy, and he was the one to whom Kennedy said, "I've never seen a blue-eyed Indian." <laughs> But you said you have now. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What else did we see at the museum that stood out to you? Um, I think one of the moments that that really struck me in terms of the lack of our general knowledge about not just Muscogee Creek history, but Native history, generally speaking, and I'm forgetting the names, but the gentleman, the father, the Native father who in the 1940s, so this was pre-Brown v. Board in the 1940s said, you're going to take my kids at your school. You're just going to, you know, and stood there and, you know, made sure they got on the bus and off they went. Like that was that was quite a civil rights moment that I knew nothing about. Teresa was talking about tribal member Jack Daughtry, who stood in the middle of the road to force the school bus to take his daughters to school. And they even had a model of the of a bus in there, which reminded us of the Civil Rights Institute and the the bus that's actually in the exhibit as part of the Montgomery bus boycott exhibit. Yeah, there was a whole section just prior to that where there was the they talked about the Trail of Tears, and really the choice that you sort of were forced to make. You know, would you fight or were you going to just kind of be pushed along down the the path, so to speak? to whatever place you were promised next after, you know, the promise was broken. And uh, I thought that was really interesting because they did a good job of forcing you to think about what that must have felt like. Um, I think museums that are really, really compelling are ones that not just tell the story, but put you inside the story and get you to think, how would I have responded in that moment? Yeah, how did they do that? They they did things with the design of the museum that helped. Yeah, and I think they gave a couple examples of like... um, Specific individuals, whether they were real or fictionalized, but the choices that they made, you know, when the government came in and said, you have to move, you know, we're we're displacing you to someplace else. Yeah. There were panels that you had to turn so that you could see one side of the choice or the other. And the panels had friction. They didn't turn easily. Yeah. Right. So they were trying to show the museum attendees how how hard those choices were. And to hear that that was a very intentional uh, engineering design to to make these things difficult to turn so that you had this sort of tactile feeling of of what they emotionally went through. Yeah, definitely. And there was a there was a sign that sort of outlined the choice that you would make either to go or to assimilate, to fight or to assimilate. And that sign, stood in your path. So you had to go one direction or the other. You had to make a choice in your in your walk around the museum. You had to choose to go one way or the other. 
you were both talking about what some of the people we talked to look like. And the ceremonial chief, Paul Bell, he talked about that a little bit himself. And I think he said that he had a brother who is darker complected. Maybe that's um, maybe it's not a brother, but he told me about somebody who's a close relative who is has darker hair and darker skin, but he's very fair and blue eyes. And he mentioned that in Mallory Rowland, our, um, our friend who's been our contact, is also fair. And she talked about that, too, and said she has a sister who has darker coloring. Yeah, that's a a preconceived image, I guess, in, in my mind. When the Porch Creek Indians were fighting for federal recognition and for their rights as a people, they had to contend with non-Native people's preconceived images. They had to contend with racism and with the generational trauma their people had experienced. Uh, just, just, from, just from an archiving perspective, one of the most interesting records I think we have is um, from a, a 1900 census of this area, and they're listing a family. And the census taker has to say, family has fleed to the swamp, will not give any information. So and that was relatively common from my understanding. So like literally seeing someone of authority coming and going, nope, like we're going to go hide until they go. Yeah. And it puts, I would imagine it puts the tribe, the community in such a bind for recognition because you needed to have those records. Mm-hmm. Brandy was telling us at the museum that the Episcopal Church particularly kept good records. Yeah, St. Anna's kept good records. St. Anna's did. Yeah. yeah, but if you're afraid to let the census taker mm. know how many people are in your family, then exactly. that's going to put those records at risk. Exactly. And that was one of the big things my grandmother would talk about when she was doing her research for federal recognition, because you had to go to families and, and talk about like, like, okay, we have to, we got to be real here. How many children are actually in your family? Like, who are you actually related to within the community? Mm-hmm. Definitely made for some interesting topics she she was very good about it she never told us any like other family secrets or anything like that but I do remember there being a lot of conversations about like just had to have a very interesting like discussion with so-and-so about this but it was it was integral to you know figuring out this family lineage so it's there was a lot of that definitely because of that you know Mm -hmm. wow Cheryl pointed out to us that many of the place names in the Southeast are evidence of Native American history. At the Porch Museum, we learned that Sylacauga, Wetumpka, Talladega, and Kaneka were all names of tribes or bands. Cheryl added some other Native names. Something I think I like to point out to people is just, especially in the state of Alabama, you know, it's so rich in Native American history. You know, just the names itself, you know, uh, Mobile, Mobila, like Mobila tribe, you know, like Tuscumbia, um, just so many, so many place names, so many uh, areas within the Southeast are just, they're imbued in that Native history. And a lot of people probably are descendant of Native Americans, but don't know it because of the, the trauma that we were just talking about, you know, like, you know, if you pass for white, you know, you moved on, you know, just for your own safety, for your own protection. Mm-hmm. Cheryl had an interesting and powerful take on the term Indian. 
It it all depends on who you talk to, I've found. Mm-hmm. This is something I've been curious about as well, you know, because some people find the term Indian derogatory. Some people still find it empowering. Mm-hmm. So it just, it depends on which Native person you talk to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like some tribes, like as a community as a whole, they'll say no to the term because they do consider it derogatory. But mm-hmm. others, you know, if, you know, I've found if they they hold that sense of identity with it. It's helped them differentiate themselves from the surrounding community. Like mm-hmm. in our case, like they, they hang on to it and they take pride in it and they take ownership back of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it's mixed and people here are mixed about it as well. It depends on who you ask. Um, I usually just say native American myself. Mm-hmm. It varies <laughs> is the long sure. story short, you know, sure. it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We asked what advice Cheryl would give to us non-Native people. So, I don't know, I I guess just, you know, take take the time to understand the history of your area. Take the time to discover your own history, because you might be surprised. Like, I help people every day coming into the archives, and they say, well, I heard, I don't know if it's true, that you know, my, you know, so-and-so ancestor was Native American, and sure enough, we'll find their name, you know, like in an old record we have, and, you know, they'll just be so surprised, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it helps, like we were talking about before, bringing that past, that connection to the present, and that's very important to some people, so it's something I always try and encourage. Like, I think you'll be surprised, like, either looking at your own history or your area's history, mm-hmm. like, you'll see a lot of uh, Native influence. Mm-hmm. Around, around Alabama especially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Come to think of it, looking at our area's history is one of the main points of the whole Here in Alabama podcast. The more I look for it, the more Native influence I do see. This past Thanksgiving, my family went to Porch with me to attend their annual powwow. We learned at the Porch Museum that powwows first developed in the 1950s and 1960s as part of the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows. Those early powwows were seen as spectacle and entertainment. Now they have evolved into an intertribal way to mingle with other people. The Porch hosts a powwow every Thanksgiving Day and the day after. Dancers, drummers, singers, and artists come from all over, not just the Southeast. My family saw dancers wearing feather headdresses, and we realized they must not be from the Southeast. There were at least a couple thousand people there for the second day of the powwow, and I assumed there were as many on the first day. I added some native dishes to my family's Thanksgiving meal this year. We had a three sisters skillet with beans, hominy, and winter squash. I made wild rice with nuts and berries and homemade cranberry sauce. At the powwow, We bought cornmeal and cane syrup from a member of the porch tribe. When we came home, made cornbread, and dipped it in the cane syrup, it tasted just like my childhood. My father grew up in South Alabama, not too far from porch. Cornbread with cane syrup was always one of his favorite treats. A big mado to Cheryl Thrower and her husband, Joey Nasser, for their warm welcome and their generous gift of themselves. Mado is Muskogee for thank you. In the next episode, you'll hear a little more about the Muscogee language and a lot more about the history of the Porch Creek Indians. I hope you'll stay tuned. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama.